For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. The campaign to unionize workers at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, attracted the attention of the entire country. A historic vote is happening right now in Alabama. Nearly 6,000 Amazon workers at this warehouse near Birmingham are deciding whether to form a union. It would be the first Amazon workers union in all of America. The ballots due today, counting to begin tomorrow. Even President Joe Biden weighed in. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. It was called the most important labor struggle in more than half a century. We know the outcome is announced three months ago by the National Labor Relations Board, which determined workers voted against joining a union. That outcome is being challenged by the retail, wholesale and department store union, RWDSU, the union that workers in Amazon and Bessemer approached to represent them. Moments ago, the union leading the campaign against Amazon, alleging that Amazon repeatedly engaged in illegal conduct, preventing a, quote, free and fair union election at one of its Alabama warehouses. Uh, The retail, wholesale and department store union late Friday filing objections to the NLRB, accusing Amazon of interfering, intimidating employees, manipulating conditions around the voting process in that closely watched campaign. Joining me to talk about the lessons learned from the campaign, including how the PRO Act would have changed the landscape of the union election is RWDSU New York City Director and Vice President David Mertz. David, thank you for joining me. Hey, Darcy, it's great to be here with you. And I'm happy to talk about um, all things Amazon because it has been an incredible and ongoing struggle that is is Mm as far from over. Well, I'm glad that it's far from over. So what happened in Bessemer is a loaded question, I know. So let's (laughs) let's just start at first with the campaign that began um, if I'm correct, when workers at Amazon at that warehouse in Bessemer approached RWDSU, right, saying what? What is it that they were looking for? Yeah, I'm just going to take a, a little step back. I mean, the, you know, the, the RWDSU has has long been active in uh, raising concerns about how Amazon operates. Uh, the big HQ2 fight in New York City, we were one of the leading voices questioning whether government subsidies should be given to a company with such a terrible uh, record mm-hmm. of how they treat their workers. Uh, even before that, we you know, had been active uh, in, in advocating for greater scrutiny about how Amazon operates uh, and, and whether or not it's like, you know, there should be a greater effort to hold them accountable for how they treat their workers and how they operate within our communities and, and how they deal with competitors. Um, so it's, it, you know, we are, are, deeply involved in the effort to try to change Amazon, to try to mitigate some of the problems that uh, Amazon has visited upon us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think so we had that reputation and we are very, very active in the South. We are one of the larger unions um, in many communities down South and the workers in Bessemer uh, knew the union. Uh, Some of the folks who worked in the Bessemer plant had relatives who were members of the RWDSU. So there was an organic connection there with the workers of the union and the 
workers at the facility, uh, you know, desperately needed to do something about the conditions under which they were working, and they certainly felt that the RWDSU was the union that could help them, and we definitely thought we were the right union to do so. So that's sort of how it began, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, with those conversations, and it very quickly became apparent that, um, you know, what was happening down in Bessemer, um, you know, was certainly happening for Amazon workers throughout the company's operations, but were writ large down in Bessemer. And there was a a real uh, desire to try to do something to confront these issues. And what were some of the issues? I mean, we've heard them in the past, but specifically there in Bessemer, what were the workers, what were their concerns that they wanted to change? Yeah, I mean, we could spend the rest of this conversation and probably quite a few more to talk about all of the problems. But I think, you know, there were some key things that were going on, Darcy. Um, you know, certainly the pandemic highlighted a lot of the issues that have been endemic to the way Amazon operates. Uh, there were deep concerns about health and safety. Uh, you know, workers at Amazon are literally putting their lives and health at risk often for just simply going to work. Um, there was one report that found that the serious uh, injury rate at Amazon facilities two times the national average, with almost one in 10 Amazon workers suffering serious injury. Amazon workers have died at work, and it's not unfortunately an unusual story. Uh, there's uh, concerns around the heat in the facilities, around the pace of work. It is a relentless pace. One worker describes it saying, it's it's like you're an NFL player, but without the money. Uh, you know, you're expected just to be constantly working constantly. The surveillance is, is relentless. Uh, and workers uh, at the facility uh, raise concerns about the discriminatory practices they felt were uh, happening uh, at Amazon. Uh, so there was a lot of, of you know, deep disquiet there. Uh, and certainly, you know, there was there was a question around compensation. You know, here you have Jeff Bezos, the, the richest man in the in the history of planet Earth, um, you know, who's who's able to spend his money on rocket ships yeah, and all exactly. sorts of other nonsense, mm-hmm. but can't but can't compensate his workers uh, in a way that they deserve. Uh, and uh, I think all of those things were just, you know, they're just deep set problems that workers are getting tired of and, and want to do something about. And the labor movement is poised to do something about that. And I think a lot of that came as a result of what happened in Bessemer. And how big of a facility are we talking about there? How many workers were you trying to organize? Yeah, you're talking about about 5,600 workers, give or take. Um, you know, it's it's a large facility. Um, when we first, uh, you know, started the uh, organizing effort there, there was, you know, some, you know, 2,000 plus workers who were working there. And Amazon, in their own description, went on one of the uh, largest uh, hiring sprees in, in the history of the company. Surprise, surprise. Uh, when it turned out that there was a unity organizing effort, and for your listeners who are familiar with employer tactics, this is um, you know a pretty typical tactic. But like with everything Amazon does, um, you know, it was an anti-union tactic writ large and pumped up uh, beyond what I think a lot of folks have seen before. But the facility is, you know, if for to wrap your brain around it, you're talking about 5,600 people. So give us um, some idea, like behind the scenes, the the campaign. Um, you're working with these workers, you're, you're you know, um, listening to them, trying to figure out what they want, and then you begin the whole unionizing campaign, right? And at, yeah. at what point does, like, how long does that from start to the point where the corporation, Amazon, starts to recognize what's going on? Or was it right away? Yeah, so every campaign is, is different. Um, and in this particular campaign, I think we were... Um, 
you know, a little surprised about how long it took for Amazon to um, fully engage in the anti-union campaign that they very quickly <laughs> turned into this massive operation mm-hmm. to crush the workers' efforts to organize. I think what had happened, and when we look back on it, I think Amazon was convinced that we would never get to an election. So, you know, keep the powder dry. Why bother going after the union too much? Because they're never going to get there. So let's not break a sweat on this. Once we filed for the election, and that was, um, you know, towards the end of last year, um, then things were really off to the races because um, we were, you know, we were granted an election. We were able to show that we had, um, you know, enough interest to the workers there. And I think that surprised Amazon, especially after their, their incredible hiring spree. Uh, and we were off to the races. Uh, and, you know, Amazon, um, really, they, there was no holds barred in their effort to, uh, you know, stop the workers from trying to, uh, you know, voice their support for a union. And they did that because it's like they knew there's really no downside for them as a bad employer to both stretch the law, mm-hmm. break the law, and actually even follow the law in, in really trying to stop workers from exercising their rights. Well, get, uh, tell me some of the specifics. What what did they start to do? I mean, we hear about the union avoidance campaigns, but, um, you know, captive audience meetings, one of the tactics. Well, the, what were some of the things that they were putting into place to stop this? Yeah. So overall, the atmosphere was one of relentless messaging at workers. From the moment they came to the work to the moment they left, they were being barraged with anti-union messaging. Uh, even to the point, Darcy, where it's like people would have anti-union messages and, and you know, posters in bathroom stalls when they went to go use the restroom at work. I mean, it was it was completely ridiculous. Constant messaging on their phones you know, uh, signs on the walls, all that stuff. So you have this atmosphere of like this, this constant buzz about how the union would be bad. You mentioned the captive audience meetings, and it's sort of a, a, it's a bit of a bloodless term in some way to describe one of the most vicious tactics that an employer can use to try to stop workers from unionizing. And I'm sure most of your listeners know what it is, but for the for those who may not, you know, in, what Amazon did was they would have these, they called them classes where they would bring workers together. And as a condition of your employment, you must attend these meetings. You would sit into a meeting for up to an hour at a time, several times a week for several weeks at a stretch where you would be told all the different ways why the union was bad and all the different problems that having a union would bring and why you as a worker would be much better off if you didn't have a union. And I, you know, I sort of, you know, jokingly say that folks could have gotten college credit for the amount of time that they were in these classes for. They were really re-education efforts by the company. And if you think about any other topic, if you told someone that an employer could force you to listen to their opinion on politics, on religion, on which baseball team to support, and you had to sit there as a condition mm-hmm. of your employment, people would be outraged. Right. They'd be outraged. Like, how, how can you do that? But of course, this is the United States with our broken legal system, and Amazon was perfectly able to do that. Um, they also had, uh, you know, they were they were skillful at getting word out to workers uh, through managers. Sometimes it was subtle, sometimes not so subtle that if the workers voted to unionize, that the facility might close, mm-hmm. that they might shift work away from the facility so that there would be fewer people working there. And while the conditions were rough and the pay was not adequate for a lot of the workers, you know, this was a good 
job or a better job than where they had been before. Leo's contended, and I think a lot of the workers also understood that these jobs could be a hell of a lot better. But of course, in a lot of communities, sometimes these are the only jobs or mm -hmm. the only full-time jobs that are available. So you're you're fighting against those two different pressures where it's like, you know, you, you, there are concerns about the job, but at the same time, there are definitely a lot of workers who will listen to an employer's illegal message that the facility will close if it goes union. But of course, Amazon, like other employers who break the law, know that there's no real downside under our legal, our current legal system to breaking the law. I mean, there, there is no real penalties. You fire a worker for organizing. Maybe if, you know, the union and the workers are lucky after a year or two years, you get a favorable ruling and all the employer would have to do is offer some back pay, less than the amount of money that the worker earned during that period. So it's just a cost of doing business for employers uh, to break the law. And, and that's, you know, that's how Amazon operated. They, they, they stretched the law where they could. They broke it without fear of any kind of repercussions. Discussions, uh, and they uh, used it uh, to uh, to their benefit to really try to manipulate how workers were viewing unionization. I read somewhere about something with that they were um, even changing a light when you enter into the parking lot facility. Can you talk about that? They wanted it to, you know, be timed to their advantage. Is that right? Yeah, it's crazy stuff. And I mean, it's almost like something you would you would see it like in a movie and be like, oh, that couldn't happen. You know what I mean? Ah, and I know, you know, something like this. There's a whole powerful company that could even change the traffic lights. But that is exactly what happened. So one of the uh, more effective ways for the union to make initial contact with workers was uh, at the entrance to the facility, because, of course, it's illegal for workers to be on an employer's facility if the employer does not want them there. So we have no access so organizers would be outside of the facility uh, gates and there was a traffic light and when the traffic light turned red, it would give an organizer the opportunity to hand someone a flyer or just make a brief introduction and so that they could meet with them at, at a later date. It was a, a fairly convenient way of contacting a number of workers in a, in a very uh, you know swift manner. Uh, organizers started realizing that the, the traffic light itself was like had been retimed and um, you know they, that the that Amazon had gone to um, I, you know to the municipality and had them change the timing of the light so that that light would be faster turnover so that workers wouldn't necessarily be sitting at the red light. Unbelievable! I mean, it's unbelievable, I mean, it's, but it's, it's not. You know, it's crazy. You know, they had there. There's uh, they they and they do this in all, all sorts of places. They they hire um, you know uh, local police off duty police officers to supposedly help them with security, but it's intimidating, mm -hmm. right? It's an intimidation factor. And, and a lot of this goes to, um, you know, there's the reality of what's happening. And then there's a perception that workers have is what's happening. So, you know, for workers, it's like they know their, their surveillance at work is constant, right? They're always being tracked on how quickly they're filling orders, where they are in the facility and what they're doing. So then, you know, the time off task is a big deal, but, you know, workers can be penalized for not using all of their time to do their work. And so they're very conscious of the fact they're being watched all the time. Mm -hmm. So that there's a sense that everything they're doing is being surveilled, conversations that they might be having about the union, whether or not they're, you know, voting or whether or not they're voting for or against the union. There's a perception at the very least, and it may underlie a reality that Amazon is uh, surveilling them in all of these different aspects. And it creates an atmosphere of intimidation.
So we see all the things that the company has to their advantage. So, I mean, you had so many things to overcome, just like we talked about being able to access the workers there at that light. So how else did you reach out to them? Yeah, I, um, I'll just mention one other thing because it's so crazy and outrageous. It's worth talking about. Um, at one point, Amazon went to the labor board and said, look, we want to have a Dropbox on property so that workers can put their ballots in the Dropbox. And the board said, absolutely not. You can't do that because it, it creates a bad atmosphere where workers will think that the, you know, their ballots are not secure, that mm -hmm. they're being surveilled. You can't do that. So Amazon said, fine. So they went to the U.S. Postal Service and they pressured them to establish what they call a cluster box, a mailbox on the facility so that they could then direct workers to put their ballots into that box on a facility. There are cameras everywhere um, that creates this environment where they're being surveilled and they managed to do that. And that's uh, one of the many charges that we brought against Amazon. Yeah, uh, they, just, the yeah they just did it anyway. Activity. Right. They did it anyway, right? It's like, you know, who cares what the U.S. government says? We're going to go around and find another way of, of doing it. And so it's it's pretty outrageous. We also feel that it's a basis of, of a favorable ruling from the Labor Board and we're still waiting for that to, to happen. But so for us, you know, the, the, the challenges are everything an organizer would often face in an organizing campaign of the just the logistics of connecting with workers when you're not able to get to them at a facility. You know, workers drive in, park, go into the facility. It's almost a hermetically sealed environment for union organizers. Uh, but the desire and the interest in unionization was, was so great. You know, workers would, of course, We'd be meeting with them outside of the facility. Obviously, there was all sorts of you know ways of communicating with people digitally. It was a pandemic, so that actually interfered with some of the methods that we would normally employ to connect with workers. And we relied a lot on you know texting and phoning workers, um, smaller group meetings that you would have. We had a tremendous amount of community support, which we felt was you know echoing. Um, the necessity for you know having a union if you want to see things change at, at your workplace, but all of that I mean it's it you really are uh, you're up against it it's it's an uphill battle to put it mildly where all the cards are are you know in the employer's hands in this game mm -hmm. uh, and it's not even like you're being dealt a bad hand it's sometimes you feel like you're literally not even playing with any cards because the the company can so control the messaging and the contact with workers. And I think that's one of the things, you know, we've mentioned the product a couple of times, but it's one of the things the product can and help change and maybe realign some of that um, misbalance. And that's right. The, so the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, a key campaign for labor, you know, across this country. Um, how would that, if we can get that passed, how would that change the landscape of this particular campaign? So what what would have made a difference had we had that act? Yeah, for I mean, one thing uh, immediately would have done uh, the PRO Act would outlaw captive audience meetings, and that would have made a very big difference in this campaign and many other campaigns. The captive audience meetings are very intimidating atmospheres for, for workers where you're in a classroom, you're concerned about what it is that you might say, you know, you're being monitored. We know that at some of the captive audience meetings and when workers spoke up and, uh, you know, offered objections or said that what the company was saying wasn't true, then of course that worker would be followed up individually by a manager on the floor, you know, they would get special attention, um, which again, you know, is, is, is intimidating stuff. And that's of course exactly what it's meant to do. 
by outlawing these captive audience meetings, at least you're taking that one nasty tool away from employers. I think another thing that the, the PRO Act would do would, it, would uh, increase penalties for violations of the law. And so in this campaign, like in so many other campaigns, the employer acts with impunity and disregard for current law because there's no teeth in current law. If they break the law, it's at best a small amount of money they have to pay. It's just a cost of doing business for them. It's really nothing that they're too terribly concerned about. And the PRO Act would address that aspect of it. And obviously, the, the PRO Act does a, a, you know, so many other things. Uh, that the labor movement needs in, in terms of protecting undocumented workers and in, in addressing, uh, you know, the legacy of, the, of Jim Crow era uh, laws like right to work. All of those things are incredibly important. But in my mind, it's like two of the key things are just these basic concepts of fairness that if you break the law, you, there should be some consequences and an employer should not allow be allowed to hold people captive and pump them with propaganda. Or fire people who want to unionize. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, did that yeah. happen in this case? So it's right now we're still in the campaign and workers who are union supporters have been terminated and we are fighting those terminations. And regardless of what happens in terms of how that's adjudicated, there is a very powerful message that goes out to workers that if you are a union supporter, you can and probably will be targeted. And even if what happens over time is if a union supporter isn't outright fired for being a union supporter, because most employers are smart enough not to be that ham-handed, mm -hmm. what they do is they will constantly watch these workers. And the minute they do anything that is conceivably a fireable offense, They'll fire them. Mm -hmm. They're on it. It happened. It happened in Staten Island during the campaign, where workers who were, uh, you know, concerned about health and safety conditions during the pandemic, they weren't fired for, you know, staging protests or walkouts. No, they were fired for violating like social distancing rules. I mean, it's it's really crazy stuff that um, there's so much latitude within the current law to mess with people that it makes it just almost too easy for an employer not to do it. And so, David, you said that, um, you know, this campaign is still ongoing. So this isn't over? Oh, this is far from over. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the effort at Amazon is, is not just about Bessemer. It wasn't just about HQ2. It's not just about antitrust or how they, you know, really uh, operate in our communities in a way that's detrimental to our, you know, to people's quality of life. It's not just even about how they treat workers. This is a global effort. And this is a, a piece of that global effort. All across the world, workers have been starting to stand up and speak out against Amazon. There have been strikes in Europe, there have been protests in, in, you know, in, in countries that have um, you know, better labor laws and, and stronger labor movements, frankly, than, than we have here in the United States. In Bessemer itself, it's not over because we have charges before the board that we feel confident um, show that Amazon violated the law in a way that really tainted the election. Mm -hmm. And one of the possible outcomes, Darcy, is that the board could uh, order a rerun election, um, which is great. But of course, for Amazon is really probably not the worst thing that could ever happen. Um, you know, yes, it's possible that uh, the board could, you know, completely overturn the election results. It practically never happens because our just our laws are not adequate for the reality that a lot of workers face. But 
regardless of what happens with the charges we have before the board, we are committed to working with the workers at Amazon to change this company, to build real power for workers, and to create jobs that um, don't put people's health and life at risk and are compensated fairly for the work that they do for one of the wealthiest companies on planet Earth. <laughs> and, and let me just end with this, on David. Do you feel like the fact that this campaign did get so much attention that it's good for the labor movement in terms of the, you know, the public, many people learning for the first time about the power of a corporate giant like Amazon and what they're willing to do to silence the voice of workers? Yeah, I, I agree with that 100 percent. I think one of the legacies at Bessemer regardless of what the ultimate outcome is, is how it highlighted for the general public just how out of whack our laws are, just how bad employers behave during organizing campaigns, and just how important a union voice is, especially during times of crisis like the pandemic. People are paying attention to this campaign like no other campaign in in my memory, and you know I've, I've been around for quite some time. Uh, and they were understanding what was happening in a way that they hadn't um, before. When polling was done, you know the the overall support amongst the general public was over seventy percent in favor of what the workers were trying to achieve through organizing mm -hmm. in Bessemer. That's unheard of. And the flip side of that was, you know, vast majorities of people, and it, it, it was both Republicans and Democrats in these polls were were saying, you know, that Amazon's behavior during this campaign was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I think there's a growing realization, you know, not just within labor circles or academic circles or even economic circles, but at the general public that there's something really wrong with how Amazon is operating and something needs to be done. We may disagree about what that is that needs to be done or even what the priority is about how to fix what's wrong with Amazon, but a lot of people, a lot of people understand that we need to do something. We need to do something now that the way this company is operating is unhealthy. It's bad for workers. It's bad for our economy. It's bad for our environment. And we really have the opportunity to do something here like maybe never before. And in part, and in part, I believe that's because of what happened at Bessemer and the courage that workers showed and continue to show in, in this fight. Well, David Mertz, thank you again for joining me and for your insight into one of the most watched unionizing campaigns of our time that you point out is not over yet. So we're glad to hear that. I, I really appreciate your time. Darcy, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. And, and thank you and, and everybody at the, at the State Fed and throughout the AFL-CDO for the incredible support throughout. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the Union Strong podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State Union strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong. Stay strong.